This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, Episode 55, Julian DeVivier in the 30s, Part 2. Uh, hello, everybody. This is David Blakesley coming at you, usual host of this, and Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Hello, David. We are here to wrap up our coverage of the most uh, recently released Eclipse series set, uh, Eclipse Series 44, Julian DeVivier in the 30s. Uh, our original plans had been to include Aaron West, a very familiar name and voice and personality in the Criterion cast universe, but uh, some last-minute scheduling conflicts came up for him, so uh, he has gracefully bowed out and encouraged us just to kind of press forward, and so we are going to do that as we kind of wrap up what's turned out to be a three-part series. It's a two-part series here on the Eclipse Viewer, but there's been another episode recorded of the Criterion Close-Up podcast that Aaron and Mark Herney have been doing for the past couple years. Uh, they were kind enough to allow Trevor and myself to join them as part of their French series, talking about some of the works of the great French directors of the 1930s. As Aaron has said, that's kind of his wheelhouse. That's been kind of his ongoing uh, field of specialization and deeper interest, uh, as he is, of course, you know, pretty diverse and eclectic cinephile, but uh, French cinema has been uh, kind of a favorite territory of his, and so we were happy to have him on board with part one of the Duvivier set, where we talked about David Goldaire and Paul de Carat, uh, two early 1930s French films uh, that Duvivier put together as he was kind of transitioning from his earlier career as a silent film director into the sound era. Uh, we discussed, was it three films last time? We talked about uh, La Belle Equipe and Pepe Lamoco and La Fin de Le Jour. Uh, La Fin de Jour, uh, to get my French right there. Uh, three films <laughs> that, that Duvivier did towards the latter half of the 1930s. And we kind of split that, uh, you know, split this, epi this uh, series of the series 44 into two parts. And I think I kind of mistakenly or presumptuously assumed that the films we talked about uh, last week, when when uh, you and I joined them for the uh, Criterion close-up, were somehow in the middle, and that La Tête Tourne Home and uh, and uh, Carnet, was it, Les Carnet, Un Carnet de Ball uh, were filmed after <laughs> those two. And I don't know where that idea came from, but I'm thinking we can find a way to blame it on Doug McCambridge or maybe Dave Eves or somebody, one of our familiar <laughs> yeah. scapegoats over nice, in the uh, nice. Criterion Facebook book groups that we like to populate. <laughs> so what do you think, Trevor? I mean, how did we get our, our sequence jumbled like that? You got any ideas? I don't I don't remember. I, I think it was Aaron. Yeah, okay. Let, let's blame Aaron. Yeah, let's blame I, Aaron. I, I like okay. the idea of yeah. blaming Doug yeah. because – you know, we've never had to do that on the Eclipse Viewer, but but he's he's um, he's finagling around behind the scenes somewhere. I'm sure of it. He's always there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I I don't remember. I just remember um, thinking, oh, we'll split it. We'll do the Criterion close up in the middle, and then hit these l kind of later films. But you're right; they're not that. They're you know, uh, uh, La Tête de Nome is is quite early. It's just after the films in our first episode. Yes. And Carnet de Ball is is kind of right in the middle of where we were last week with the Criterion close-up. So so yeah, I um I don't know. Yeah. And I guess as long as listeners forgive us, it doesn't really matter. So it was an avoidable <laughs> error on my part. I mean all I had to do was look at the doggone dates <laughs> on the films. They're right there. But but you're right. So and and it so it was kind of an interesting experience for me because I had not watched uh 
these last two films, which are translated into English, The Head of a Man, or I guess as it was um, re released in, in America back at the time, The Neck of a Man. And uh, Un Carnet de Ball uh, is dance card or dance program, uh, referring to like the little card that young women would, would uh, hold as they would write the names of all the gentlemen who asked for a dance at a formal kind of a ball uh, uh, occasion, something like that. So uh, those films, uh, uh, La Tête d'un Homme was what, uh, 1933, uh, Un Carnet de Ball, mm -hmm. 1937, the same year as Pepe Lamoco. So if you really want to follow these chronologically, you're going to have to hit your stop and start <laughs> button and, and uh, you know, sequence them all up because we're a little bit out of order here. And we might even release this episode before the Criterion close-up is finished. So we'll, we'll see how the, all the editing and all that works out. But you will have, listeners, uh, three full episodes talking about the uh, unduly neglected Julien de Vivier. Uh, we did discuss kind of the aspects of his career, uh, his early um, formative years, and uh, kind of what happened during the 1930s in our previous two discussions. So I'm not sure I want to go too much deeper with that. Uh, I don't know. How about just some opening thoughts uh, as we look, look at these two films, Trevor? Uh, what's been your experience with Duvivier as we uh, kind of roll out the conversation? All right. It's been it's been great. I, I when they released this set and well, when they announced it, I thought that's going to be another one of my favorite sets. Not sure why I was so confident. I'd only seen Pepe Lamoco at the time, but I just I, I love this period of French cinema as well. He certainly, you know, when you kind of uh, look at people who are talking about him, um, they're talking very appreciatively and and so I just had confidence in it. I just uh, felt like it would be special, and I was right. I'm happy to say this has been a great experience. His his films, um, is, you know, they, they're just special in a way that I it, it, it's almost like Renoir. I, I'll say uh, Jean Renoir's films from the same period. Um, which are films that I adore. Um, I love The Grand Illusion. I, I love um, um, A Day in the Country. And, you know, these didn't quite raise up to that level for me, um, but close and still in that same kind of superlative, transcendent examination of, of people in, in a little bit of quiet desperation in, in a way. Mm -hmm. They're living fairly happy lives on the surface most of the time. I mean, Du Vivier's films have been very have been varied, um, but at the same time, you've got these people who are kind of quietly dealing with something on the interior. And I love the way that he went around these. I loved, um, I, I loved it. I, I will say though, um, and maybe this is something that uh, you you mentioned earlier. It was an interesting experience going from the close up episode to these two films that we're going to talk about today. Is that because you recognized a bit of a digression? Um, because I certainly felt that as well, if you did. I thought, these are these are fun films. He hadn't quite... They're not him doing his best work yet, though. You know, well, that... I, yeah, I think, I think there's a couple aspects there. One is, especially going back from La Belle Equipe, and Fin de Jour, uh, which were really 
you know, sublime, beautiful works, and also very nicely presented. We were able to watch them in a kind of a high-def transfer. Yes, uh, and that made go, a difference. Going back to uh, uh, the head of a man, the neck of a man, uh, I'm going to just you know, kind of let the French go for now. But but going back to that definitely felt like, oh, yeah, we are back in the Eclipse series here. <laughs> These are not restored films by any means. And I was actually a little surprised. I thought actually uh, Paul de Carat or Carrot Top was probably the best, uh, most consistent transfer of the four films, which is actually one of the older ones. But both both uh, uh, Dance Card and, and The Head of a Man have some really beat up passages, which you know again give you the sense that wow, is this like one of the few surviving prints of this film? And I, I, I actually had a little bit of expectation that maybe a little bit more restoration work would have been done because these films really are, uh, you know, they'd be very nice if if they had that restoration. But again, I think it goes back to uh, Duvivier being somewhat taken for granted or underappreciated that that these films just have not received the exposure that I agree, Trevor, uh, they are very worthy of even, even the idea of, a, of, of let's bring the best of French cinema to uh, the contemporary audience. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that Criterion released this set. Um, they apparently don't have a lot of access to other Duvivier films of this era because there are some other pretty major works. We kind of, again, talked about some of them. Uh, La Bandera, Golem. He actually did a kind of a, a Passion of the Christ type movie, uh, kind of a story of Jesus that uh, I have still not even seen any clips from. But as I was just kind of reading through his filmography of this era, uh, you're right, Trevor. He covers a lot of different territory. And one of the really exciting things about this set for me is just he really traverses uh, the highs and lows of society and seems really equally at home in each one. And that's, that's kind of unique because a lot of times these directors, they kind of find their comfort zone and then they kind of stay there and they kind of look at the nuances or the, you know, variations within it. But, uh, you know, de Vivier is really, you know, running the full gamut of society from the lives of extremely wealthy and privileged people like uh, David Goldair and and the protagonist in, in uh, Dance Card, and then with La Tête d'Honneme, uh, just the scuzziest low life riffraff <laughs> that you you might really want to encounter. Uh, and they're all right within the same era. These are all you know very contemporary films. And uh, yeah, just just his mastery, and, and you're right. There's a fun element too of kind of just um, exploring these kind of uh, exciting, uh, you know, colorful worlds. Uh, but even while there's you know, moments of comedy and levity, there's also incredible tragedy and and, and despair. So yeah, it's quite it's quite a banquet of emotions and and, and sensations that we get in these films. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 you know, another thing that's interesting is this is an era and and a culture that is going to be just um, kind of uh, demolished here yeah. in just a few years. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, and you kind of get that sense a little bit. Yeah, people you are know, feeling you, it. People are feeling uh -huh. like you know, live for the moment because we don't know what tomorrow may bring. Mm -hmm. And that that little whiff of all of that brought to mind Stefan Zweig. Um, he's the the author the that became rather 
popular here in the U.S. for a little bit when Grand Budapest Hotel came out, um, Wes Anderson's film, because, you know, Anderson said that he'd kind of based some of his ideas on uh, Zweig's work. And when I read Zweig's work, there's definitely a lot of that feeling of being stuck between two wars uh, uh, at the beginning, kind of feeling up and and like we've, we've overcome a lot of things, if you're in a certain part of society, that is. And then toward the end, feeling doomed. And Zweig definitely felt doomed. He, he, he committed suicide in Brazil um, during World War II. And so there's, there's a little bit of that feel, especially in, in Dance Card, because you've got this nostalgia for the past and uncertainty about the future. And where am I right now? Well, you're just a few years from some pretty awful, terrible things. And a lot of the you know people acting in the films, as we talked about in episode one, aren't going to survive the war. And it's just... It, it, there, there's that sense of tragedy to these. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it comes because of the context that I know about around the films and how much is inherent in the films itself. But I will, I, I do think that the films themselves do um, possess some of those qualities as well um, that are very unique to this time period. And, and you know, even though we've done some work with, uh, with Japanese pre-World War II film, and, and there's a little bit of that there too, this um i'd say this sense of 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 doom for a rather rich uh culture is a little bit unique to europe and you get uh, you get that in in these films it's uh, it's really interesting now i guess in one of these films in one of them it's a nice classic crime caper <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um, we'll get into that a little bit too but but yeah uh, so much to talk about I would love if they released more Duvivier films anybody to release more um, I you know I, I wish that I wish we knew if they had access to any more than what's on Filmstruck which is just um, uh, Lydia and Anna Karenina that we haven't talked about is that right? right? Yeah, those are both 1940s films, so we may, we yeah. might touch on mm-hmm. those. At least Lydia, I did have a chance to watch that, and it does bear a okay. relationship with Dance Card, so we'll we'll, we'll explore that. But maybe uh, let's just get into uh, the head of a man. Uh, uh, you know, I, what, what is the head of a man? Well, uh, well obviously, <laughs> we're talking literally about the head of a man, the, the physical head. And that, that point is emphasized quite graphically by the opening title card, which is basically <laughs> a guillotine. Uh, and the camera, you know, kind of just holds on that and then kind of very slowly pushes it on the image just to kind of emphasize the gruesome nature of uh, of that instrument and, and, and the the symbol of uh, so-called justice that it represents, uh, but also the seriousness uh, of what uh, uh, what's at stake here in in this film, which, as you as you said, Trevor, is a crime caper. It's uh, uh, Inspector Maigret's story. Uh, Georges Simenon is the author. Uh, I have never read any of those novels, but apparently he does have quite a reputation, and and there's a certain following for these. You know, classic detective mysteries. You want to give us a little uh, literary intro or any background? Oh, I'm sure. Sure. Well, sure. why don't you go ahead and just kind of set the stage for this as one of the uh, probably earliest and, and still to this day most successful adaptations of a Simonon novel. Well, so Georges Simonon, he, he, um, he's quite the character. He wrote about, I think, 76 novels 
about Inspector McRae and lots of short stories. But in his whole career, he wrote somewhere in the range of 500 novels. That's amazing. This, this is yeah. how this guy lived. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> he, he wrote books. And that, I mean, I know a lot of people live that way, but, but that's, that's you know, what this guy yeah, I've, did. I've, I've probably reviewed <laughs> five or 600 films by, in my <laughs> blogging and think, yeah, that's, that's an accomplishment. And, and you're talking about novels. <laughs> that's crazy. Yes. Yeah. And, and um, anyway, he, he was fairly uppity. Uh, there, there are stories that he had kind of a personal feud with Albert Camus, of you know the the famous you know he won yes. the Nobel Prize course, at a fairly yeah. young age. Um, in fact, I've read stories where when Camus won the Nobel Prize, um, Simino was pretty livid. You know, he thought that's that was my prize. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't yeah. know if I would go there, but maybe, maybe I would, if I knew more of his work, um, you know, my, I've talked about them before NYRB classics, one of my favorite publishers in the world. Sure. Um, they curate a lot of, um, of great books from all different time periods, all different genres and all different countries. And they have, um, in the past released quite a few Simino novels, not this one. Um, and I've read a few of them. They are very interesting. You know, for someone who's churning out novels, you'd start to think that they might just be paint-by-numbers kinds of stuff. But he's he is dealing with social issues. He's dealing with dark interiors. He's dealing with... Um, with unique people, and one of his strengths is he tends to deal with normal people. Um, he was pretty um, against the idea of writing about, say, a serial killer just for the for the excitement of it, um, because he kind of considered them rare and extraordinary individuals. He wanted to show how this kind of stuff can interrupt your life. You know, your your normal everyday life that you go out and feel fairly comfortable in, he wanted to shatter that illusion just a little bit and say, you know, any of this, anything of this could shatter your, your day pretty quickly because these are regular, ordinary people, both the criminals and the victims. And... Um, and so, you know, he, he is doing a lot of interesting work and he lived to be quite old there. You know, this was... this particular book was written in the early 1930s. It's the fifth Magre novel. And, he, you know, so obviously he had time when to write another When the character was 70. still pretty fresh and, and yeah. you know, had, mm -hmm. the formulaic aspect maybe hadn't even begun to set in, if there mm -hmm. was one. I mean, I'll take you what you say. There's a lot of variety and creativity going on. And, you know, sometimes yeah. those long series really do get deep. And, I mean, we talk about <laughs> Zadoichi and 25 films and the character still had some life to him. So uh, why not in the novel world as well? Yeah. The, and, and obviously, I, I haven't read them all. But Penguin, um, another publisher that does a lot of great work, they have started to re-release all the Magray novels. And in fact, I even saw that they were planning on releasing all of them. Wow. And I'm not sure where they're at in that process. Uh, but you can find this particular book um, translated as The Head of a Man in a, in a fairly new translation. I think it's just a couple of years old um, out there from, from Penguin here in, here in the U.S. and I think in the U.K. as well. Uh, you know, just, just go out there to Amazon and, and search for it. You'll find it as well as lots of other as, of his books. Um, but yeah, he you know he 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 knew he knew about this world a little bit because he did base uh, the McRae character on a fairly famous 
um, inspector in Paris that he was friends with. Um, so I don't know how much all you know all of that played into it, but you got to imagine Paris has a lot of uh, a lot of people from various backgrounds. There's a lot of material oh, to mine there. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, and and of course we've we've seen so much. You know, Naked City and Dragnet and other even up to this day of, of modern you know, pol- police dramas and things where, you know, you just scan the headlines and you see a juicy story and you tweak it a little bit and voila, you've got yourself a plot and, a, and an episode. And so, uh, you know, we've got sort of an early version of that. Uh, a little bit of background, Simonon himself apparently had intentions of directing this film. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there had been a couple other uh, adaptations. That's the that he ego. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But, you know, while he was pretty good, obviously, with pen and paper, uh, apparently his his own eccentricities of personality just made it, you know, untenable for investors to actually put up the money and say, okay, you you run the show. So he was bought out and uh, the the job was turned over to DeVivier, who had already, again, obviously had some success and had shown himself capable of, uh, you know, doing some good commercial level work and i think he he does a fantastic job with this i mean it's just it's very intriguing and and uh again after um moving through the elegance of la belle equipe and uh le fin du jour uh particularly as well as pepe lamoco which you know probably there is a connection here in terms of that seedy underbelly of society in pepe lamoco this this work here is kind of a good preparation uh you're not in the labyrinth of the kasbah but you're still in some pretty you know pretty dark and and seedy quarters of paris you know bars and cafes and uh, kind of tenement apartments and back alleys and just all kinds of environments where uh you know kind of the dregs of humanity (laughs) have gathered uh, as well as you know people with uh some ill-gotten wealth and, and privilege uh trying to keep the game moving along even though they know that their day of reckoning is is swiftly you know moving in so yeah so you know so du vivier you know got a pretty great cast together uh, harry bauer in this particular uh, installment is inspector meg ray and uh yeah what do you have to say about harry oh boy well I, I think have we lavished enough? Is he the poster boy for the Eclipse viewer after the Les Mis set? Well, and, you know, he uh, <laughs> he can do no wrong. I mean, even in the next film where he's more of a support character and a what you might even call mm-hmm. a bit part, he still is quite quite memorable and very evocative. But here is again just just brilliant. You know, he's he's got such and he's and he's not a, a Jean Valjean knockoff, and he's he's different from David Goldair as well. Um, but just another very richly inhabited character. Uh, you can see the the anguish of a lifetime sifting through these crimes, uh, you know, and looking at just the nasty business that 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 men or people in general are capable of, and uh, and yet he's not jaded. You know, he's he you know to get into the story a little bit. It's basically about a. Uh, a little bit of a playboy is sort of get to know his character as he's kind of introduced himself, kind of feeling up women and little lascivious winks and nods about, you know, indiscretions uh, are are going on there. And, and yet you can tell he's living over his head in terms of uh, his material lifestyle because he's, he's broke and he makes an offhanded comment about, well, how he'd pay good money to have his aunt, 
knocked off so that he could pick up her inheritance and resume the 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 cushy life that he's become accustomed to and a stranger in the cafe and the bar there kind of here overhears the comment drops a note in his pocket takes him at his word and the man has to make a decision and he decides yep i'm going to go ahead and and commission the dirty deed and and uh and collect the money collect the loot and that kind of is what sets the whole plot in motion there but when the murder occurs it's it's done with great ingenuity in which a kind of a perfect stooge is set up to take the fall and all the pieces are in place and if the inspector just wanted to kind of you know get the conviction and close the case and move on to the next uh sordid bit of business uh, he could have easily done that but inspector McRae doesn't want to take the easy way out he recognizes that there's something just a little bit too convenient about how all the pieces fell into place to to pin the blame on a particular uh, uh criminal here and he decides he's going to kind of thwart the normal order of things and and go against conventional wisdom and and keep digging because there's more to be discovered in this particular case. So, yeah, it's it's all very you know very ingeniously connected and some really fascinating uh, characters that we get to meet along the way. Yeah, and one thing that I I liked about it too is Magray is getting is doing this in a little bit of ingenuity, but the criminal recognizes this. And yes. decides I'm going to have some fun with this fellow. Oh yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> I'm great make cat him and mouse part game. of my plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a, it's a it's an interesting back and forth where McGray knows pretty well what's who who did the murder. Yeah, he's you know, just got to kind of patiently gather gather the pieces and set it up so that the confession comes out. Because even the killer, there's somebody behind the killer that. That, that prompted this and he's got to figure out you know what's the motive here why would somebody unrelated to this woman take her life and, and of course again you know put the flunky in the way uh try to you know exonerate himself that way by by pinning the blame on the a person who was quite expendable and then also what motivated this 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 poor young man this this uh this this uh, kind of bohemian, uh, you know, mortally ill transient to to concoct this whole scheme, and, and that that in itself is also just very compelling. I don't know if we want to get into spoilery stuff too much, and maybe we should avoid some of that because uh, I think my mission here, <laughs> uh, our mission in this episode, is to say, hey, folks, watch these films, you know, and and I know there are some people who listen to this. Maybe before they they tune into the set, or maybe as a refresher. But my my overall sense of the Duvivier set is that it has not yet reached the audience it deserves. Um, but for those who have watched and and are listening along, I hope we give you enough insight in our discussion here to you know to prompt some recollection or to you know illuminate things that maybe you know didn't sink in the first time around. I don't know. Nope, I'm good with that too. The, you know, sometimes I would push back and be like, "No, in order for us to actually discuss this film, we need to discuss what it, what it what happens in it fully, so that we can really get into the nitty gritty." I don't know if this one requires that. You know, it's a it's a great film of twists and turns, and part of the fun is trying to understand the game part of it. 
You know, it's, yeah. it's almost like a Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty kind of thing where it, it isn't about the money. It kind of is, but kind of isn't. There's some other things going on here that have inspired this uh, this desire to, to wreak a little bit of havoc and and upset the world just a little bit. And and that's um, you know that that's fun to to discover and understand, and I also think it's where uh, Simeon is is making most of his his commentary about uh, about society at that point. But I but I don't think we need to get into that um, fully in order to to you know talk about this film and appreciate this film and hopefully encourage people to check it out like you're saying and yeah. and also to check out Simeno his work is you know he didn't win the Nobel prize uh you know <laughs> he was robbed but well, um and is, but he, he, did, is he regarded as a what you might call a literary author i mean stylistically or is he more just a creative kind of a force of nature where he's just overflowing with um ideas and plots and twists and turns and then once you get to know the character you're just intrigued to kind of keep following him along on his journey uh, you, you get the I, distinction i'm making there yes i i think that he is um maybe I'm trying to think uh, all these terms are fall apart eventually but you know he is he is artistic he is literary okay um more than you know Conan Doyle or Agatha and, and I love Conan Doyle's like work. Right, right. Oh yeah, and I okay. love Agatha Christie's work. Mm -hmm. But I think that Simenon is is on a different doing different things. I I will say I don't think Agatha Christie should ever change. Um but he is he's doing things a little bit differently and more in line with um with what you might consider someone who who would be up for the Nobel Prize. At the same time, he probably damaged any chance he had by putting out a million books because how can you evaluate that and it also does give the impression that you're just churning these things yeah, this, this how just, could it be so easy these are they pulp must, paperbacks yes yeah, right, they're pulp right, yep right, you, right. you put that much stuff out just so you can bring in the check yeah because you're just writing you, by the page you pulp the remainders yeah yep yeah. but you know when you have someone like penguin saying you know what let's release all 76 of these books yeah. new in new translations you know, there's there. It is, I think, um, a little bit of them saying, "Hey, this this people can get hooked on to this and really dig in." But I think it's also them looking at it and saying, "This is this is real and and artistic and and hopefully people will start to dig in." Um, so I would I would say I never would have you know based on the things I've read, um, I wouldn't give him the Nobel Prize for the Inspector Migraine novels. But he's written a lot of really dark existential um, books as well that um, I would say are much more in line with what you might expect okay. someone vying for the Nobel. And it may be that he was a little bit too dark. Not that Camus like brightens and shiny, <laughs> I guess. Not quite, so yeah. that, that might not apply. But. <laughs> but I think there's also just kind of that, you know, we think of characters like Camus and Simonon as these kind of, you know, towering figures of uh, 20th century culture and all that. And, and Simonon and Camus, Camus just, he thinks of Camus as that, that bastard who, who owes me money or who, whatever the story yeah. may be, you know, just on a personal level, like why him, <laughs> not me, you know? Just the, well, and I don't even know if Camus cared. Yeah, Do you know what course, I mean? Or exactly, right. I mean, it was just kind of like one of those 
twists of fate. That's like Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize. And it's like, whatever, you know, uh, I'll, I'll get to you uh, sometime next year. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, next time I'm in Sweden I'll, I'll, or Norway, I'll pick up my prize. And, uh, of course, other people are desperately craving and hoping to, to reach that pinnacle. So that's just how uh, recognition works sometimes in this world, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Duvivier does some really nice things. There are some really uh, beautiful scenes and, and framings. I, I think of some of the, the the menacing danger parts where one of the when that stooge uh, criminal character is kind of running for his life, and there's just he's like, just kind of lurching across the screen in some of these you know really kind of low angle shots where there's just oh, all this yeah. empty sky, and he just kind of comes kind of it's rearing like a monster up. picture. Exactly. It's very much so, and he it, kind of rears up. On yeah, all right, and, and he comes up on that little girl. Uh, you know, and steals her bread when he's just hungry, and I'm, uh, I'm having all these flashbacks to Fritz Lang's M and Frankenstein, and you know, just you know, just great atmospheric <laughs> moments there. Uh, you know, again, De Vivier kind of captures the, you know, the spectrum of of just kind of this dingy, you know, uh, you know, dark streets, and and just the the, the teeming, you know, fullness of life, and and. Uh, you know, that that grit and despair that we've already mentioned, but it's just yeah, there's just a lot of that 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 uh, local color, if you will, and uh, yeah, it's just an atmosphere that I just really enjoyed, kind of sleezing around in for uh, that, an hour and a half, uh, and then of course returning to my nice suburban comforts uh, when the film had run its course. <laughs> don't don't let Simon break that down. <laughs> no, no, no. All, well, yeah, you've done a really nice job of uh, convincing me. I should at least take in one of these novels. Maybe I'll look this one up and uh, and read the original. No, that sounds good. Um, one thing that I will will remark. So you, you, you're right, and I caught that too. You've got the Frankenstein moment. I mean, that stooge, as you rightly called him, he's he is a wandering monster there for a little while, and that perfectly evokes the scene from the classic Frankenstein movie. There's the part where he's walking up the stairs, and you see his shadows, and. There's no way, I, I cannot believe, that Duvivier didn't watch um, uh, Nosferatu um, yeah, yeah. right before filming that so that he could get a similar effect of the elongated shadow, the elongated fingers, the arm kind of out uh, freakishly to the side. Um, you know, he, he's creating a monster movie in, in, a, in a conventional police uh kind of caper film and i think he's doing that on purpose and the the interesting thing to me and i don't really know what <laughs> what to make of this and um, we don't have to get into it but this is the monster who did not commit the crime right he he really is a a, a poor sap a fall guy who who did nothing wrong except maybe allowed himself to get drawn into a plot mm -hmm. that that did involve some you know mildly criminal activity i think he was just there to do a robbery rather than a, a killing but yet he finds the corpse and even even the presentation of the victim is pretty gruesome for for this era you know, yeah with the, it, really, with the it was blood shocking and, yeah with with i mean there's the corpse and her eyes are open staring right into the camera and it's like whoa uh that's yeah uh, you just don't expect to see that in films of the of this era just because uh, censorship uh even even in Europe, I, I would have thought was strong enough to say, "Hey, that might be a little over the line there," but it, it did have a, a pretty stunning effect there for a moment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing that I, again I haven't thought too much about where the the criminal, the actual criminal, and you you people know who it is almost from the very beginning yeah. because 
You, you just you, you see it happen, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's a, a, a spoiler there. But the criminal himself, very suave, very charming, very yeah, and, you know and, intelligent, not a monster. Right. Well, he was except played, for that he is. <laughs> yeah, he was he was played by a uh, Russian uh, actor, uh, Valery Inkijinov, uh, uh, who apparently had had you know had some success in the Soviet cinema, had come into Europe, and really plays this very brooding kind of you know bleak character. And I think he's a pretty key um, player just in terms of creating that atmosphere and that sense of menace and that sense of kind of existential dread that that really does hang over the whole film he's he's got a quarrel not with rich people not with the the law the police but with life itself and with the cruelty of his fate that he's mm-hmm. struggling with and it's like you know his 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 victim is really humanity or existence and it's just like wow it's just yeah, pretty dark, bracing stuff there. So, uh, yeah, just a, I, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed this uh, quite a bit. This was a very invigorating watch and one that uh, I definitely could see myself spinning again just to kind of, you know, re- revisit that world. So let's go ahead and transition over to uh, the second film of the two that we're going to be talking about today, which is 1937's Un Carnet de Ball. Uh, this is a film that uh, was released and, and made the same year as Pepe Lamoco, so quite a productive year in Duvivier's uh, work here. Really one of his masterpieces, uh, Pepe Lamoco, is is pretty widely recognized as such. And I think Un Carnet de Ball is, is right up there as well. It's In fact, it was quite successful in its time in France. Uh, a big box office sensation. And in the show notes, I've actually linked to a couple of contemporary reviews from American newspapers in 1938, 1939, uh, the Pittsburgh Press and uh, a Berkeley publication, Berkeley, California, where this film was was quite uh, positively reviewed. It had won the, uh, I think, was it the Silver Lion in Venice uh, the year before as, as the outstanding film. And so... Um, it's maybe not quite as fondly remembered nowadays. I think it's it's very deserving. Maybe it's it's not aged quite as well as some of the other classics of uh, of the era, but it's a very rich production, and uh, I, I think it's it's quite remarkable and quite unique because it is uh, delivered from a sort of female centric perspective. Uh, the story sets it up as the recollection of a widow, a young woman, a very you know, beautiful and rather rather privileged young woman whose husband has died quite suddenly, uh, even in the midst of writing a letter explaining the contentment and joy of his life. And even as he's in mid-sentence, something happens. It's not sure if it's a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, but he dies, and now she's left wondering what her future holds. And as she sort of sits there at this, uh, you know, painful and somewhat awkward position in her life, uh, her memories go back to happier and simpler times of her youth. And she finds this relic, uh, this dance card, uh, a little card listing the names of 10 men who had asked for her to dance with them. Uh, around the time of her 16th, uh, not her birthday necessarily, but when she was 16 years old, 
and uh, all these fine young suitors had lined up asking for the pleasure of a spin around the ballroom well, floor. Uh, well, young young suitors. Well, okay, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a range. There's a, there's a range of men uh, asking uh, uh, asking for her hand and dance. So yeah, let's uh, kind of share some of those impressions. Who were these suitors, Trevor? Well, they they're, they are a range. You've got you've got the the one who's more close to her in age, you know, and we we meet him. Well, his his we go to his story first, and then you know we get all the way to where Harry Bauer is one of her suitors, and you know he's an old priest, an old priest in this film, you know, so he he must have been in his late thirties, even forties when she was 16 and he decided to more dance than twice with her. her age. For yeah, sure. for sure. Yeah. More than twice her age. And there, you know, there are others that might fit that boat as well, but there, there's a, a wide variety of, 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 of these. And consequently we have a, a very, you know, f- wide reaching, you know, kind of um, wide screen story of, of love and regret and, and passage of time told in, uh, I think you mentioned it, but told in a bunch of vignettes that, um, you know, as she goes through this. And I, I will just say some things based on, on your your t- um, thoughts at the beginning. You know, even though the husband is writing about his contentment with life, um, the one that she did end up marrying and, when, and he died, there's little evidence that she herself was incredibly content with that life other than that she had money. Um, she, yeah, she lived in this kind of uh, sterile palace. I mean, everything is just so rich and elegant, and she's and she felt you know, alone. You right. Know? She it, she mentions that at a time when people are kind of apologetic to her. She doesn't seem to take her husband's death that seriously as a personal loss, so much as a you know business partner. Um, yeah, there's loss. a disruption to her routine. Uh, she's not a mother. There's no children involved. Um, mm-hmm. And so she's, yeah. you know, she's got very little tying her down. And, yeah. and I guess, I guess right. consequently, not only is with his loss, is she thinking of what's to come, but she's also thinking about what might have been, you know, exactly. I had 10 suitors on that night. What would my life have been like if I managed to be with any one of them? And also as she goes around and dis- and discovers what is there you know all these different pathways that shot off from that one night to various places <clears throat> to various stories to some who are you know like you said in the city underbelly um to others who are priests i mean the the pathways are wide and so she's wondering what are the potentials of my life that have now already passed me by um that I'll I'll never live. You know, she's she's seeking the past as much as a future in in this film, which is it's it's interesting. I, I did uh, I liked that element of it. Yeah, no, and it, it really makes to me again, and I think to a lot of viewers who've come to appreciate this film, it's a very entertaining watch because you you have just such a, a nice uh, and vivid cross section of, of of French and European society. Uh, it's an incredible cast. If you've watched enough French cinema for some of these folks to become familiar faces, it's quite it's quite delightful to see who turns up in one scene after the next. And even if they're not familiar faces to you as actors, they all do a quite remarkable job of kind of bringing 
these characters to life, even if they're only on screen for, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 12 minutes as, as, uh, as our leading lady moves from, from one situation to the other. So yeah, uh, Marie Bell is her name. She plays a woman named Christine. Uh, she's, you know, obviously been very well cared for. She's got, uh, you know, just, you know, beautiful platinum blonde hair. She's always dressed in the height of fashion, furs and jewels and hats suiting every occasion of whatever environment she's in she's you know dressed to the nines and comports herself quite elegantly with with class as she is remaking connections that have been really lost and dormant for you know practically the last 20 years uh, each of those suitors on the dance card at some point or another during that evening profess their love for her Love meaning what? Admiration, affection, uh, the proposition that they'd be a very suitable partner for her, or is it the ardor and zeal of a young man who's just <laughs> aroused uh, to have this uh, gorgeous young woman in his arms and this close by, and he himself is thinking, <laughs> what might become of this? And so, uh, but but you know, the these these characters are all somewhat advanced in life now because uh, the the years have taken their toll and uh you know in in some cases the uh, the men have not had much more life and she discovers that some of those men have passed on uh um the first of which is uh due to circumstances that are somewhat affected by her choices even though she can't really be responsible but a young man who took his own life uh based on the the sadness of, of being spurned and now maybe <laughs> presumably there were other issues going on there but uh, she she comes to grips with the fact that uh, one of those young men uh, uh, did not did not live to see a whole lot more life after after the ball had passed and and yet it's really a story about a woman another woman an older woman who has gotten lost in uh, kind of her inability to accept the reality of what's happened. What would you think of these first this first scene there, Trevor? Is a little bit. I, actually, when I first saw it, it's like, oh boy, this is a little bit over the top. But it got better after that. Well, it, I, I did. I liked it too. Um, yeah. And it 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 was interesting. I didn't, you know, at that point, didn't know how the film was going to progress. I yeah, didn't know it was exactly. a series of vignettes. And so you do start to kind of invest yourself into this particular story of a mother who's who's at a loss and and I just oh it, it's pretty pretty terrible um, and the the nice thing about it is that you know while the story is focused on Christine's own journey to find out more about what could have been and what happened to these people and her own future you you do go into each of these other lives to see them dealing with some of the same things. They themselves have regrets. They themselves have um, have changed. They're not who they were at that time. In fact, several of them have different names now. And they tell her explicitly, I'm glad you knew so-and-so and not me. me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the exactly. me who is the, right now. The identity I currently inhabit because and, life has forced them to make such a drastic break that they can't even travel mm -hmm. under their old birth name you know it's that yeah mm -hmm. and and again that that whole that that journey from the late 19 teens to the late 1930s i mean you talk about this kind of pivotal era that europe was in and and the storm clouds on the horizon and the 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 
a tragic necessity to just kind of undo what's past and try to redo the present in order to survive into a very uncertain future. Just really, it does it. It inhabits all of these characters. Everybody has that shady side. I mean, even the priest, the Harry Bauer character that we'll talk about in a moment, you know, you, you get the sense that he's he's hiding from a past and he's he's concealing things over you know behind the 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 cloak of religion and and you know caring for these young boys as he's a choir leader um you know he, he's got perhaps noble motives and all of that but there's also this kind of you know desperation to get away from something that you know if he kind of held on to that earlier identity it would have cost him. And, and you get that in so many of these characters that they really had to make a definitive break with their past because the consequences might be unsustainable otherwise. Yeah. Well, now I have a, a question about how to, to proceed through this. There, sure, there are yeah, so many yeah. little stories, um, some of them better than others. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I have more general thoughts about um, yeah, how we fine. get to these stories and also just the this kind of structure of film in general. But I think my thoughts might make more sense to listeners if we address those things after we have talked about some of the individual stories, which we've started. We've talked about the poor boy yeah. who committed suicide and whose mom, you know, is – Living still with his memory, time warp there yeah. exactly, and and in gross denial of mm-hmm. what's actually happened. You know, she's kind of in a delusional state, and, yeah. and there's a, there's a little bit of a horror show aspect as well as the kind of you know the tragedy becomes extremely clear to Christine of what's happened, and she sort of has to just get out of there before she starts getting drawn into this vortex of insanity, you know, and it's just, uh, well, yeah, yes, yes. That, that part where the, the door starts to open yeah, and we're yeah. focused on her face rather than the doorway. That's actually, mm-hmm. that's very tense because <laughs> yeah, right, the mom's right. going, mean, Oh, here he comes here. He, you know, we know what's happened by now. Yeah, and she's like, Oh, there, there he is walking around. He must be showing. And then the door starts to open and yeah, there's a, <laughs> you're it's right. Like a zombie to come and stalk <laughs> the, door the monkey's pie, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, but, but you know, so, so each of these characters, we, like, we've got the priest, we've got the, the, kind of the shady criminal. I think that's the second segment there. I don't have them all memorized. Mm-hmm. But that's the one with Louis, Louis Jouvet. Jouvet. Yeah, and that, that's a really fantastic scene. And that's where it I is. was really hooked in because I said, oh, I see. We're going to be kind of going down the dance card and meeting each of these characters. And Louis Jouvet, he, he uh, was a you know, pretty major character in uh, La Femme du Jour. And I don't know, what are some of, uh, do you have it right off the tip of your tongue, some of the other great roles he played? I mean, he's a Ooh, I don't. completely undeniable presence if you've watched films from this era. I just, I um, maybe need to study up a little bit more or get my uh, memorization going there. But he's just got this real striking presence. But in this case here, he, he plays a... Uh, kind of a, a disbarred lawyer. So yeah, so Trevor, <laughs> okay, let, let me jump in here. <laughs> so he, he's sitting there with his henchmen, kind of calculating the the sentence and, and, and the crimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, it's pretty pretty great there. As uh, I couldn't help but think about your uh, chosen profession there, as he's uh, <laughs> telling his boys, okay, wait till three fifty five a.m. because once the sun comes up, now you're not guilty of the extra penalty of of committing crimes at night and so on. Uh, so. <laughs> Is that how yes. it is with the Yeah, exactly. The We're like, okay, if you want to, if you want to rob this money with the the smallest penalty possible, you know, you could still get eighteen months. 
but um, <laughs> just make sure you don't you don't hit any of the extenuating circumstances. Leave your arms. Um, do it after no more the sun than two. has risen. No more than two. You can't do a gang crime. Yeah, either. don't don't. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was really funny, and and I thought he did a great job of just um, just coldly coldly going through and and, um, and talking to them about that, and then walking around his club because he owns a club. And basically, I mean, he just it's just business minded through and through the practical yeah. way of getting, you know, how do we get these people to to be uh, happy and to bring in more money? He goes up and tells the band leader, play a different song, a faster song. Go, go you go and talk to that girl over there. You, oh, you know, yeah. and let's have these new dancers, which was also a little bit surprising. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, there are some some topless moments, folks. So again, if, if that if that floats how did your this boat, film I guess not <laughs> become more famous. Yeah. Well, and it, it it does make me wonder because again, this film got those positive American reviews. There there had to have been some censorship. I just cannot imagine. Oh, probably this yeah. There's no way Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, in 1938, and, know, and they would have been easy uncut. to cut out. Of course, yeah. yeah. They're they're gratuitous moments, but they uh, yeah the camera lingers there for a second. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's they're they're just great stories, and you've touched on. Uh, I don't know if we were done with that one. Um, did I? No, that's uh, fine. I mean, I mean, we could move through these fairly quickly because, it, yeah, it may get kind of tedious to break down each one. And but, that's where I want to get great to at the end. Colorful <laughs> moments, yeah, for sure. Um, that it can get a little tedious, um, but anyway, we'll get there after. After again, I think after we've talked about any of the particulars that you want to to talk about. Oh well, there's the one uh, that's set along the side the the docks of I think it's Marseille, um, uh, where the uh, the presumed abortionist uh, the, the guy who came back from saigon again alluding to some of french's colonial history and again you know for american viewers listeners you mentioned saigon and we're thinking 1960s vietnam war mm-hmm. movies and you know apocalypse now and and uh, you know all all the all the post-vietnam films that were made well you know france has its own history in that part of the world and and it definitely brought to mind uh, port of shadows of uh, a great uh, poetic, realistic, uh, proto-noir classic starring John Gaman and uh, uh, Scott and I did an episode on that. Uh, I don't think you were part of that one, were Mm-mm. you, on Criterion nope. Cast? But, I wasn't. Uh, but a, a just a splendid uh, slice of life f- uh, film from I think the you know, early or no, late 1930s, but I think 37, 38. Uh, another one of Jean Gabin's definitive breakout roles there, but you know you've got the the docks and the machinery and the ships and and uh, in this case in in this film here in Carnet de Ball, you've got a doctor who's living in a very seedy kind of a loft apartment with his you know mistress slash girlfriend slash assistant slash caretaker, uh, and uh, you know. It's never the the abortion word is never mentioned, but that's clearly one of his sideline specialties. Uh, but he's just completely exhausted and burned out with life, uh, whether due to some kind of chronic medical condition or perhaps some uh, extravagant abusive lifestyle. He's prone to seizures, and and yet this is one of the women uh, that uh, one of the men that uh, Christine had met at the ball when he was just an aspiring young medical student with a supposedly promising future ahead of him and and in her journeys as she's as she's meeting different men uh, from her past who you know embarked on different uh, you know courses through life she's discovering one by one that they've all kind of 
you know, led down courses and pathways that probably were somewhat better for her to have avoided. But uh, this one in particular stuck with me just because it's just so disturbing and so dark. And, and even the filming technique with the canted angles, I mean, it's, it's like we are, yeah. we are almost, you know, at, at you uh, feel uh, like you're going to fall out of your seat. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and uh, just the, just the, the, the warped perspective of this entire scene, everything is just so grungy. It's, and it's, 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 it's so foul and, and yet you, you can't look away. Well, maybe that is a good segue into some of the things I want to talk about with the style of the film. Yeah. How, yeah. how many really interesting choices do VVA and, and not just do VVA, but some of the other folks working with him, um, do or make in order to create a break with reality. Um, as the film begins, you, you have Christine sitting in her kind of empty room and, you know, her husband has, has died and she's trying to figure out what to do next. And she starts to think back to that dance party and beautifully the dancers begin to appear, um, yeah, kind of taking a, back to it's mind. It's a dream or uh -huh. a hallucination of sorts, but it's it's quite elegant. and, and It's just really pretty and it looks yeah. haunting, but not in an alluring way, not in a frightening way. And it took me back to Paul de Carat, where you know the the little hallucinations the the boy has there. The dancers how well, and their circles. And all yeah, that, yeah. How well choreographed it all is to to get these people to pop in, you know, into the frame at the right moments, and you know, it's just really beautifully done. And right, the the swish of the skirts and the fabric mm -hmm. and the and the twirling on their toes and 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 just the sheer elegance and that that waltzing music behind it. It is. Is quite hypnotizing and, and well, a really beautiful that's, flourish. <laughs> that's one of my favorite bits of the entire film is that music. Absolutely. Um, the music by Maurice Joubert. And I don't know if you saw this, David, but he played that backwards. And then, well, he had them record it backwards and yeah, then played I read it the forwards so yeah. that the sound was just off you know it just, just had that little eeriness mm -hmm. to it or something yeah, so you've yeah. got this really elegant look at the past but it's it's warped it's it's distorted and and the music does a great job it doesn't it's not i don't know if i would have noticed it fully had i not um, known that going in i did know about that part of the, the with the music and so mm -hmm. i was paying attention to it but it doesn't sound entirely unnatural you know it's it's not it's not the the beatles um, yeah, backwards masking, or, uh -huh. or just that kind of that really obvious, wah, 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 yes, wah, you know, kind of thing. Where, yeah, where it's like, it's, oh, this is just weird. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. It's not like that at all. But there is a little bit of that where the note hits a little bit off. Yeah, and that little it's really warbling a nice there. effect. Yeah. Uh -huh. I really, really enjoyed it. And then you brought up the canted angles in that in the that one segment. Um, mm -hmm. You know the whole film, and it goes to a variety of places. You got the kind of adventurer suitor who, you know, yeah, up in the, up Alps in the mountains and <laughs> there, and and it, again, gorgeous scenes. Mm -hmm. You got this really pretty, pretty dramatic, uh, you know, uh, avalanche footage of uh, you know just gigantic plumes of snow and collapse, and and there's you know there's some rear projection and there's some relatively dated special effects but again it's just you know conjuring up this drama and this this sense of place and atmosphere you know you you've hey, got david the, yeah do you want to check your recording again you just kind of yep. i heard the same sound no we're still rolling 
Okay, okay. good. Okay, thanks, good. sorry. Thanks I thought, for, let's yeah, catch this early this yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, okay. But yeah, so you, you've got, you know, kind of the, the gloom and the shadows of the kind of the, the cathedral or the, 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 you know, the church setting, as well as the vast open spaces of, of the mountain air and, and, and the, you know, the virility and the energy of a man who's, you know, just he's he's an outdoorsman and he's an adventurer and he really just doesn't have time for dames <laughs> basically it's like he's yes you know he's he's a is a great catch and, and an attractive guy and and a real man's man but uh you know he's got other duties and responsibilities mm-hmm. and priorities than to sit around the chalet with this woman as attractive as she might be and so yeah you've just got you know all these different uh sort of examples of what a man can become uh, the 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 harry bauer character had been a composer he was the older man who was trying to seduce this young woman through his music uh, he had written a concerto uh, and played it just for her and you know she she was just young and distracted and had no notice that this was a special composition that had been uh, intended to delight her and uh, that kind of created a, a crisis of faith, you could say. And he had to renounce his ways and start a new, you know, take on a new calling. And so, yeah, I mean, just just kind of an amazing uh, set of character studies um, in in very short moments. So even though you know Christine is the focus of the film, each of these men really has their chance to step forward and and kind of show what they're about. And some of these characters are are tragic; others are kind of petty and and unremarkable but again <laughs> examples of of uh what men uh can sometimes choose to do with their lives yeah good stuff and i think this is a kind of film i'll get into to some of my my general thoughts yeah. where i don't always enjoy them while i'm watching them i do find nope. these vignette kind of style films to be a little tedious every once in a while because you get into a story and then it has to end and you move on to something else where you have to get another sense of rising action and and right. climb, you know every story and has sometimes to have the its endings pieces. feel a little they feel mm-hmm. a little trite or a little you know contrived yeah. Yeah, just to kind of move on to the next thing because we've kind of run out of ideas here so let's just wrap it up i mean even even the the alpine scene is kind of like that could have been trimmable. I, I like the, some of the scenes. I like the visual elements, but the story itself didn't seem to have a lot of grit to it, you know? So, mm-hmm. and, and then the, there's this, what about the mayor scene? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that one? In particular? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I thought it was comical. Um, yeah. And, and it, it brought some nice comic relief to, to a film that sometimes can be quite dark, but that one in particular probably didn't mean as much to me because it strayed a little bit farther away from the themes of the film to just be funny for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as, but so, so I don't know. That's it reminded me of Max Ophel's. Well, for many reasons, you've got this, this oh, Europe, yeah. uh, you know, with a capital E and, and well, all caps uh, culture and, and some uh, high culture. But it also reminded me of La Ronde where he yeah. is, basically doing a, a bunch of vignettes about love as well. And, and Le Plaisir has that same sort of cyclic mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. effect, you know, just little little bits and pieces strung together, uh, slices yeah. of life, yeah. Well, and even with Laurent, we have uh, we have one of my favorite actors of all time, Anton Walbrook, 
singing mm-hmm. of all things, and yeah, I still yeah. was I still would get bored. It's it's a film that I I like more in um, theory than I do in in practice, and that's how I feel about this one as well. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of great ideas here, um, and and Christine is the engine for it. And she has her own individual story, but she's also um, a kind of a prop to to get around to all the other pieces as well. And so it mm-hmm. starts to fall apart as as anything um, real, as any one unified story, and becomes just more a, an exploration of a theme, which is valuable and good. It's just not something I enjoy as much when I'm sitting there watching it. Yeah, there is an aspect to which she's a bit of a paper doll, you know. I mean, she's she's viewing and observing all these men, but we're we're not always really ushered into her own world. I mean, there's just little glimpses here and there of what she's yes. thinking and what she's yep. feeling. But but really, in some ways, the men steal the show because they are more evocative, expressive characters, and they're more types. Well, and they're and the ones. Yeah. We witness their changes in each of their stories, but we don't see her. We we see her realize again and again and again that, you know, that might not have been the life for me, but we don't see her reflecting anymore. We just see them kind of dealing with where they are. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty good observation and probably a, a pretty, uh, you know, pretty valid critique of maybe where the film doesn't go as far as it could in terms of uh, being an advocate uh, for the woman's perspective. I mean, she's, she's still uh, in this, in this sense, kind of a dependent character, you know, she's going to be defined somewhat by whichever man she did or did not connect with. And, and, you know, even the ending of the film, if we want to get to it, is kind of like, after all this, it's all just a trifle anyways, you know? <laughs> yeah. But but where I do love the film and think that it's particularly valuable is, I, I again, I, I could be reading into it a little bit. It's hard to, to not do this, though. You know, this is 1937, and this yeah. is a panoply of Europe again. Uh, you really know, she is, yes. it begins in Italy. She's in the Alps. She's in the the high society. She's on the the docks of the rivers. You know, she's all over the place. And this is a world that, for the last twenty years, um, has been seeing itself one way, but that is going to recognize it's all going a different way. The ending does not go here, but I do think the rest of the film can be can be looked at as not just a personal story of these individuals, but of one of collectively of, of Europe and of lost time and of lost culture and of lost opportunities that are, are not coming back and um, you know, it's it's like a a devastating um, maturity into some kind of uh, loss again <laughs> you know yeah well to go back to the story of the mayor and you know yeah we kind of talked about some of the comic aspects kind of taken taking a little bit of cheap shot at the rubes and the provincial you know the locals who have a little exaggerated sense of their own importance but then there is this kind of dark denouement at the end of that scene where the mayor kind of has a chance encounter with his adopted son a member of this younger generation who turns out to be quite a scoundrel and and he's i mean even to the point of of robbing from you know his own family and 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 kind of extorting money from his his adopted father just to just to kind of get a little bit of an angle on something and the father ends up 
really viciously beating his son, like whipping his son in a stable. And, you know, there's nothing really all that funny about the way that that little vignette winds up. It's 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 quite sad. And so you see this kind of this generational conflict, which kind of epitomizes the disappointment after the supposed war to end all wars. Uh, we find that corruption and venality is just as rampant as it was uh, in those dark years, uh, you know, when Europe was, was up in flames. And, you know, and as as we look back now, we see that those flames are about to reignite. And, uh, yeah, that, that we really haven't learned all that much, despite all the, you know, the tragedy and the, the lessons that might have otherwise seemed to have insisted on imposing themselves upon us uh we're, we're going to be right back at it you know slaughtering each other uh within just a, a a year or two of this film being made yeah i i agree and it's a uh, because of that i do think the film is probably more important than i'm giving it credit for and and i don't want to come down so hard on it um no i wouldn't i because... wouldn't really come down hard i think that i think there's there's plenty to admire mm-hmm. It's not well, a, exactly. There's so much going on. I mean, look at look at all the things we've talked about. <laughs> oh yeah, for minutes. sure. This is this is a very <laughs> content rich film. Uh, you know, maybe not a a complete masterpiece because it's it's maybe a little bit overstuffed. Uh, there's just so much going on. But but in a sense that that's what makes it you know all the more easy to appreciate because there is this. You know there is this really incredible creative ambition. I mean, this is this is a an original concept, I believe, that Duvivier wrote himself with some assistance of uh, a few others in terms of dialogue and and whatnot. But this is an original story, and I think that's something to quite you know to take note of. That Duvivier himself really conceived of this. He wasn't just the man directing the camera. He wasn't just the you know the hired hand to uh, you know, put the shots together and and manage the crew. Uh, he really did have almost you know whether you want to call it an auteurist sense or not, but this is a very much a comprehensive Duvivier thing that he was doing here, and I think that that kind of impresses upon me the fact that he is worthy of of high recognition and and respect. Uh, for his artistic accomplishments, and again, you know, we've kind of every episode we've done in this three-part series has talked about why don't people appreciate De Vivier more, you know, and and maybe it's just because his later work became a little bit more you know, pedestrian, or maybe a little bit more uh, director for hire, or maybe he just you know, other than Pepe Lamoco, doesn't seem to have that you know signature masterpiece. Although I will say, I think La Belle Equipe is as deserving of the highest acclaim as, as any, uh, you know, uh, well, I don't know. Again, is it up there with Renoir, Grand Illusion, Rules of the Game? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'd have to it's really watch them. It's worth talking about. <laughs> it's worth talking about. I mean, to me, La Belle Equipe, uh, to go back to the CCU episode, is just such a perfect realization of so many things that are marvelous about French cinema of this era that, um, you know, it it deserves the the highest acclaim in my in my opinion. Uh, it it as I said there it did, in the previous episode, it doesn't maybe hit the 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 larger themes that Renoir did, but there's there's so much goodness there, you know. And so well, I'll leave it at that. So, do we blame Godard 
uh, you know, is it his fault that Duvivier doesn't have the the renown that that he should? Because I I don't know a whole lot about this, but I, I think Aaron brought it up, and I, I know yeah. I've read about it too. That you know, Duvivier was one of the old men of cinema that was really battered by Cahiers de Cinema with um you know with uh, Godard, I think in particular, um, right? Just kind of calling out the this style of filmmaking. Um, and breaking away and doing, you know, the, I think getting Duvivier, into the French New Wave. Yeah, right. I think Duvivier stayed within the French studio system, whereas somebody like Renoir will always, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he broke away. He remained independent. He, you know, he, he went to India. Uh, he, you know, he, and, and he was probably just as a personality more gregarious and more, you know, a legend in his own time. He and did so more he, to promote his films, even though, too, while yeah. he was alive. Exactly, as as a distinct body of work. I think de Vivier really just, you know, he he was working for the paycheck, and I'm not saying he was compromised. I don't know enough about his, you know, 50s and 60s work to really have any opinion at all. But it's just, you know, the impression I get is that he's just stayed within the bounds of conventional filmmaking. And when the, you know, when the young rebels decided we're going to break out and kind of do our own thing and, you know, give the finger to the establishment de vivier was part of that group and so you know he kind of got dragged into the a conflict that was completely not of his own making and probably did not have any interest to him at all he's you know and and he continued making films all the way up until uh you know his death in 1967 and uh you know i don't think he was ever really deterred by the the nouvelle vague he just kept doing what he did uh, for as long as it was within his power to do so, but these these films of the '30s, I really do feel, are foundational uh, to French cinema, to European cinema, to art house cinema, and and um, you know I, I've really enjoyed this this last few weeks of really immersing myself in in his work, uh, which includes some of the things that he did afterwards. Uh, have, have you had any chance to watch any of his? Uh, other films outside of this box? No, no, I haven't. Okay. I, 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 I'm excited to. I know that there are two on Filmstruck, and I'd, I'd really like to see Panique because it's another adaptation of a Simenon novel. Yeah, yeah, that one definitely feels like a, a one that it would be nice for a Criterion to acquire in some way, somehow, or to seek out another means. But I, I have actually had the chance to watch two uh, later films of de Vivier's. One is Lydia, which is on Filmstruck. It's from 1941. This was, I think, his second Hollywood film. He had also done The Great Waltz, which is a biopic of Johann Strauss, uh, which, again, kind of ties into some of this. Uh, I think The Great Waltz was actually before Un Carnet de Bal. Uh, so, again, some of that you know, that ballroom waltzing thing I could imagine spilling over. But Lydia is actually... Uh, <laughs> sort of cited as a remake of Un Carnet de Ball. I think remake is a little bit, you know, misapplied, but there's certainly some connections. Uh, Lydia is played by Merle Oberon, and Joseph Cotton is probably the other you know, major name that would be recognized among the cast. But uh, in this in, in this case, in Lydia, uh, Merle Oberon and Cotton and a couple other men, three other men, I believe, are made up to look like old folks. And the makeup isn't exactly entirely successful, <laughs> but they, they play people like in their presumably 70s or 80s who are looking back kind of on the, uh, you know, maybe late 
19th century era when they were young. And Lydia is a woman who became a bit of a spinster. She uh, dedicated her life and energy to opening a school for blind boys, a kind of an orphanage or foster home for blind boys because she was just this dedicated servant. But in her earlier life, she had had you know, tempestuous love affairs with these four men. And at this late stage of life, they're all reunited and they all kind of go back in time and recount some of the circumstances that they went through and, and why things never quite worked out for them. So there is this kind of thematic carryover and there are some definitely some shot for shot uh, transpositions of the the twirling gowns and the ballroom scenes and things of that sort. But huh. honestly, you know, it, it is very interesting. I mean, if you if you're a fan of Uncarnata Ball, uh, definitely check out Lydia just for kind of the the cross connections there. But Lydia, as a film, is you know a very very mixed bag. I mean, for some folks, and, and there were <laughs> there are some portions of the film that I found really insufferable. And I watched it with my wife, and she was just kind of rolling her eyes at some of the exaggerated acting and. You know, the affected, you know, uh, femininity that Merle Oberon probably was 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 forced to take on. And just, you know, there are, there are just some aspects of that film where you can tell Duvivier has been brought in for his directorial talent. But this is not a Duvivier project in the same way that these 1930s French films were. He was definitely a director for hire at that point he did have some creative input he did some very nice things there are some beautiful scenes and moments uh but the film itself is a little bit less than fully satisfying i would say a, a clear departure from the the quality and the intrigue that that we get in this set um you didn't sell that one to me uh, well <laughs> well like i say it's it, as a study it's it's worth it and you know i mean it's it's interesting to watch merle oberon and joseph cotton i mean in this case joseph cotton is kind of a good guy so you don't get some of the hmm. the the nuances or complexities that you get in some of his more famous roles you know like in the third man or citizen kane or whatever but but you know it's 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 a it's an interesting piece it's 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 you know, maybe on a more academic level, worthwhile. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Um, and then Unlike the last the rest one, of the set. Yeah, <laughs> let's just put right, that yeah. out there. No, the, we the don't want to go down. A, on yeah, I, I, well, and uh, you know, uh, Lydia's from 1941, so it would not have fit into the set. But it's definitely, I can understand why Criterion has not put it on discs. Let's just say that. Uh, but the last one I watched was was De Vivier's final film, uh, Diabolically Yours, uh, starring. Uh, uh, Alain Delon, and then there's a a woman. Let's see if I can find her name real quick here. Let me grab that. Um, let's see where are we at here. Uh, Senta Berger, I think is how you pronounce her last name. She's kind of a European Raquel Welch, <laughs> and so you, if you can just sort of mentally visualize that, uh, Alain Delon and uh, Senta Berger are just a beautiful couple, um, and and the intrigue there is that uh, Delon plays a man who's recovering from a car accident, and he wakes up with uh, what appears to be some sort of amnesia, where he doesn't remember the woman. Uh, who claims to be his wife. He doesn't really remember the life that's been described to him as his, you know, what his routines were prior to this accident. But he has other memories of being a soldier in kind of the Algerian war. And, and so, you know, there's a psychological thriller going on here where 
his his sense of identity and what people are telling him his identity is are in conflict with each other and there's just some intrigues and mysteries that are going on and again to me it was just fascinating to sort of hearken back to Pepe Lamoco and France's colonial era history and the and the wars and the conflicts that uh, you know the French nation was involved in uh, in the subsequent decades between Pepe Lamoco and of course you think about Battle of Algiers and, and all of the things that were happening uh, you know, throughout the 50s and 60s in French society as they were kind of cutting their ties to their colonial past and yet still reckoning with some of the, the consequences of it. And even to this day, even in today's political and, and uh, you, know, you know, cultural situation, France is still kind of reaping the bitter fruits of its colonial history with some of the issues and problems that they're dealing with as a society nowadays. So, but this was Duvivier's final film. He was uh, himself quite ironically uh, died as a result of a car crash. I think what I've read is that he had a heart attack. So the crash itself didn't kill him, but the, the, the impact of the situation did lead to his demise. And so his final film was uh, an Alain Delon uh, starring role and uh, and Duvivier's definitely got some very interesting um, moments in that film in terms of his use of color and uh, just some of the editing and some of the sequencing. It, it, that very entertaining film. I, I have it as part of a Studio Canal uh, five film Ellen Delon collection and uh, one worth picking up. I'm not sure if it's still in print or not, but it's one I picked up several years ago. And uh, was happy to be able to see Duvivier's final work in that little box set. Huh, that all sounds good. So, so uh, yeah, uh, I think we've we've spoken pretty adequately about this this box set uh, as we open this whole series with. This is the most current uh, Eclipse series edition available, and we still don't really know. If we're going to get any more, uh, the July titles have been announced uh, recently, and so uh, still no more <laughs> Eclipse that's on the horizon. We have just one slim rumor that really hasn't ever been backed up any further than a little quip mm-hmm. out of the mouth <laughs> of uh, one Peter Becker. But It's uh, a good place to get it. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't get much more authoritative than that. But even even then, Criterion has been known to announce titles even in print, that uh, never quite come to fruition. So, you know, there's always a lot happening behind the scenes. But yeah, any final thoughts on this set, Trevor, as we wrap up this episode? I've enjoyed this. Thanks for the opportunity again to go through another great filmmaker's work. I'm, and thanks to Aaron as well. It's too bad he couldn't be here with us today. Again, yeah, as I, David said, he he encouraged us to move on. We didn't. We certainly wouldn't have done so just on our own we didn't just say eh, aaron can't be here see ya <laughs> no of course not but uh, yeah so. his, his contributions are are very welcome and if you haven't had a chance to listen to the criterion close-up episode uh seek it out it's definitely worth your while mm-hmm. and uh yeah and, and so we'll we'll be doing this again so we are okay uh and then there were two. Oh right? boy uh, oh boy yeah so uh the next time we'll be recording trevor and i are going to be discussing uh post-war kurosawa one of the really most important and essential Eclipse series sets of them all. Uh, we have this one to get through, and then late Ozu, and then it'll be from there, whatever else the Eclipse series might set. But we are getting very, very close to the end. 
Uh, we're going to just kind of make uh, the post-war Kurosawa, uh, David and Trevor episode. So we're going to probably break that into at least two episodes. We'll see mm -hmm. how it goes when we get down to it. But we'll probably get those recordings going in the next few weeks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Those are Me each too. of them. Very special films. And I feel like, yeah, we are kind of reaching a bit of a pinnacle as we uh, as we uh, proceed forth with the Eclipse Viewer podcast. So I'm looking forward to reconnecting with you shortly down the road there trevor i'm looking forward to it too not not to not to just be like oh good we're done with do vva but but i've been looking forward to the kurosawa and Ouzu sets for so long so i'm excited yeah definitely well yeah this has been a fun conversation this is a very worthwhile set um four films of of intriguing substance uh worthy of a spot on your shelves listeners so i uh, hope you follow our lead and if you've got comments or feedback for us, please do drop us a line at Eclipse Viewer on Twitter. Uh, you can find my work on uh, uh, on Criterion Cast. Uh, Trevor, your your blog was throwing a lot of Latin out there last night. <laughs> what was going on with that? You want to talk a little bit about the mooks and the gripes and uh, what's happening with your site there? <laughs> yes, apologize for for all of that. I I've decided to update my site and uh, went with a new. A new design theme, which should allow me to have quite a bit of flexibility. Um, unfortunately, in order to to integrate it, I had to make it I had to make it live and download kind of their basic package, which puts all that crap on there. So it's going to well, be yeah, a few days of me. Well, probably a few months of me going through it to get the design just right, and also to eliminate. Um, all of the kind of sample things they put there to teach me how to do it. Um, I've tried yeah. to make it so that at least the homepage looks navigable and still has all the content that, uh, you know accessible there. Um, but I'll be I'll be working on that. I appreciate any patience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I, I follow your 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 blog on Facebook, and there's all these little uh, Latin <laughs> blasts going out there. It's like, wow, Trevor's getting deep there. Yes, I decided <laughs> to really dig into some old uh, old text, you know, <laughs> <laughs> untranslated, right? <laughs> yes. Anyway, yeah, you know, I, I've gone off the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'm glad you were able to have a conversation with me in English today. I really appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank at, you for tuning in, listeners. Hacker, so. <laughs> no, yeah, I was. I, I kind of wondered if there was something happening along that line, but. All safe and sound. Okay, folks, we are done with this episode. Uh, we'll be talking to you all real soon. Bye-bye.